Hey, TC, what time is it? Shh, shh, shh. I'm looking into a mirror right now. <laughs> and I have to say it one more time. Candy! <laughs> time for a makeover. Hi, I'm Siege. And I'm TC. And welcome to Movie Makeover, the podcast where we take the movies you love, thank you love, the guilty pleasures, and the one you downright hate, and give them a much-needed update. This week, we're going to be discussing Candyman, a 1992. Uh, Candyman was released in September 11th, 1992, uh, by TriStar Pictures. The film follows Helen a grad student writing a thesis on urban legends. The project takes a drastic turn when Helen focuses on the local tale of Candyman, a black aristocrat from the 1800s who was lynched for impregnating a white woman. Legend has it that Candyman will return to kill those who evoke his name five times while looking in a mirror. After summoning him herself, Helen's life begins, a, begins to resemble the very urban legends that she once studied. This understated horror movie was made for $9 million and made a respectable $25 million in the box office. Directed by Bernard Rose, starring Virginia Madison, Tony Todd, Xander Berkeley, and Casey Lemons. Let's talk about the critical response to this movie. Um, Candyman has a 74% on Rotten Tomatoes currently. On IMDb, it has a 6.6 .6 out of 10. Pretty good for as far as the movies we tend to cover. Mm -hmm. um, and Roger Ebert gave this a 3.5. Five, I'm and a half stars. very interested to see what he has to say about this movie. Well, I, I took a small quote from him on this movie. He says, It's all kinds of intriguing. Elements of the plot may not hold up in the clear light of day, but that doesn't bother me much. What I liked was a horror movie that was scaring me with ideas and gore instead of simply gore. Roger I Roger. actually agree with Roger on this. Okay! I'm not gonna all lie. Right. The things that I love about this movie the most are that it's not just... I've always thought of this movie as... I guess we should just go into the previews. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, our previews are what you knew about the movie before watching and what were your first impressions um, then and now. Well, uh, I remember Candyman as a box and blockbuster that I would walk <laughs> by and was curious about. And finally, I had an older cousin that told me to watch it rented it um for me and we watched it together and i remember before he told me this he said um it's like bloody mary that's what that's what was told to me about this movie was i was expecting a bloody mary type movie with this black man with the hook interesting um that's really funny when the movie started i immediately thought of everything that i knew about Candyman. yeah and one it was a movie that i knew that i had never watched i was terrified of horror movies growing up so i Knew I wasn't going to watch this. And I remembered it being like Bloody Mary. I mean, like, the scene we open up is very um, Bloody Mary. And I'm thinking to myself, what kind of foreplay is this? Yeah, sure, like, exactly. Like, oh, that's the same <laughs> thing I thought. I mean, we'll get to that. But, I just yeah. thought it was, like, really, really interesting. But either way, um, I was like, oh, I remember just being terrified of a kid of all of these, like, so-called urban legends, and so... Well, one memory I distinctly have is watching it, and I, I remember watching it when I was really young, but I also remember renting it again when I was, like, in maybe middle school watching it, and being 
terrified, like mm-hmm. actually being super scared of it to the point where I walked into it this time expecting to be a lot more scared than I ultimately was. Uh, also, I knew Tony Todd because when I did get into horror movies or thrillers, uh, Final, Final Destination, Destination. <laughs> I knew it. Final Destination was my intro and I just knew him as that character and everyone was like, oh, they got Candyman to be in this movie. I'm realizing that you were brought into horror through Scream. I was. And, and everything Scream and Scream. all the Scream <laughs> spinoffs that followed for the rest of the 90s were your entrance plate It really horror. was. Yeah. You are completely accurate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, do you have any thoughts after initial impressions after watching it this time? So, I love this movie. Yay! I love this movie so much. Okay. There is so so much that I'm going to go down. I like I I could write my own thesis paper on this movie. Yes, yes. I went down a rabbit hole. I loved the ideas that this movie brought down. Absolutely. I was like, is this one of my favorite horror movies? Like, I just also there's just so much about it that is done right. There are a lot of things that are wrong, of course. Sure. Um, and it's kind of dated in its technology. But I'm really, really excited to get into this. I'm so glad you said that because I spent the day listening to other podcasts about this movie where people did not really have great things to say about oh, it. God. And, and I think completely missing the point of it. And what I will say about watching it this time is that I knew before watching it that Jordan Peele was making a remake of this movie. Ugh. And knowing that Jordan Peele saw something in this IP made me watch it differently. It made me watch it as if it were a Jordan Peele movie and not whoever the hell directed it. And that allowed me to kind of soak in a lot of the subtext and a lot of the symbolism that I think they were trying to convey throughout the film. Um, that is going to come in heavy in my makeover. Sure. Um, but I, I just watching it and as as someone who we've been doing this podcast for a while and then I watch a lot of of video essays, I immediately, my mind started to break this movie down into what it was trying to say. Usually horror itself has a message and I'm really excited to get into this one. All right. All right. All right. Well, let's start with the good. And, you know, the good is kind of, we're going to break the, the good and bad categories up as into cast, crew, and story. The cast being all of the people we saw in the movie, obviously. The crew just being the movie as it was made. The elements that make a great movie um, visually, sound-wise, all that stuff. Um, and then the story itself. How does the story uh, grab you and captivate you? So um, let's begin with the cast. Um, this movie, um, though it's uh, always synonymous with Tony Todd, is actually Virginia Madsen's movie. It really is. And I like I have not seen the sequels, but something tells me that everything that's great about this movie is completely lost in the sequels. I, just, I, yep. just from the fact that we pick up with Tony Todd uh, being the star. But yes. um, I gave Virginia Madsen, um, she did really well to me. I think yeah. her casting is great because she plays that 90s white woman that you understand. She is like pre-Michelle Pfeiffer in the leather jacket, just going into... Uh, inner city areas and just like I'm here to help. <laughs> I was gonna say she is the perfect well-intentioned white woman, which is such a character in and of itself. I have so much to say about <laughs> this white woman. Um, but I I agree that I thought she did a great job with it. I thought I um it was believable this mm-hmm. uh, this kind of vampire-like attraction she has to Tony Todd's Candyman, not really understanding anything, but just being almost entranced by him. Um, And I thought that she was also great at just um, 
you know, waking up in those situations where she's covered in blood and doesn't know why. And, like, all of that reacting, I thought, was really well done. Well, I think her journey is really good. Like, when we see the way she starts off, which is very entitled white woman. Yes. And very, I have a certain idea about myself and an idea about my life and the world. And, as you said, well-intentioned. I will give her that. But well-intentioned in a way that's not respectful to anyone. And it is interesting to see her descent into darkness and to see how she plays that. And uh, there's a certain scene that I'll get into later, but like when she reaches that that point of quote-unquote evil, uh, you're right there for the ride, and it makes sense. It's so funny because I often, throughout the whole movie, interpreted uh, Helen's character um, as being symbolic of just kind of white people yes so it was really like i it was interesting because i didn't really form opinions about her as much as i was correlating how she was representing so much more than her yes so if, if, if that wasn't intended in the script she i thought she brought that to life i'm sure it was but i thought she did a great job with absolutely um and then also tony todd's tony todd he i feel Bro. like the character of Candyman is like maybe a notch towards the cheesy side, but what he look first of all, the moment his voice came in, I got chills. Yes. Like his the, chill, his voice, voice comes in and you're oh like Oh my god, pay him per syllable, bro. <laughs> He's worth the money. I will say it's this weird thing where it is both scary and seductive. Yes. I'm like, I'm both terrified and my pants are coming off. Well <laughs> that's and that's the thing I really give Tony Todd credit for. I was listening to some interviews with him today where he's talking about how he was this classically trained actor that took like fencing classes and ballet and like studied, you know, storytelling and approached this character as if it were a Shakespeare character, you know? Mm-hmm. And um one of the things I love is that I don't know if this was his choice or if this was written in the script, is that he is not dancing around like the leprechaun he is not putting on a show the way freddy is he is not this barbaric jason or or michael he is this seductive sexual cool chill i'm not gonna chase you i'm just gonna tell you hey you're gonna be my victim you want to be my victim don't you like okay tony todd all right candy man you really you're 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 making you're distinguishing yourself in in a series of slasher films where there is not a lot of couth and I just thought he brought a lot of just cool jazzness to to the character. Very much so. Uh, I think seductive is the right word to yeah. say because you know it's dangerous. And you can even see her kind of be, like, resistant but also unable to resist. Sure. And you know what? I imagined, like, okay, uh, what if Wesley Snipes got this world? How different would it have Oof. been? And I would imagine it being... More seductive without the scariness. And I think it's Tony Todd's voice, that kind of like that demonic bass in his voice yes. that really takes it to another to another level. And again, him being so seductive while also being so intimidating is the story of black men in America. Oh, and we are going to get there, <laughs> sir. Again, thesis paper on the way. Um, so if you're interested, just wait on. Um, I also had Vanessa Williams. Okay. Not Vanessa L. Williams. No, yeah. Which I always have to remind Vanessa myself of. Vanessa A. Williams. Or Vanessa A. Williams. Sorry. No, no, no. That, the other one is Vanessa L. She's Vanessa... I think they just go by Vanessa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's just Vanessa... She got it first. Yeah. Um, that's how that's how it works. I remember... Um, I know her from New Jack City. Uh, yes. New Jack City. But this is Anne Marie. 
Um, and her character is also one where she brings heart into the story almost immediately. I love what she contributed to this movie as a character, but just her in her performance, the scene with the dog. Yes. When you hear that cry, you know that, I mean, I, I, we watched a lot of hood movies growing up. I mean, so the sound of a mother crying over the death of their child is this like from the gut sound. Yes. I think what Vanessa Williams does with Anne Marie's character is she is able to give you literally a spectrum of emotion. Yes. She gives you angry, who are you, stranger in my neighborhood. She gives you, that was just a front. I'm very welcoming, very loving towards my child. I would do anything for him. She gives you mourning, and then she gives you forgiveness. And she does all of those things, believably. And I just, I think it's amazing. Yeah, no, I think she did a fantastic job, too. I agree. Um, And then the uh, next person on my list for the cast is Dewan Guy. Um, and that is the little boy who plays Jay. Oh, he does a great job. Yeah. And he, I, I'm pointing him out for a few reasons. One, for a little kid, he nails his role. You totally believe that this kid is from this area. You believe that this kid is. He understands the world. He understands yes, how it works. Mature beyond his years. Is what in I a way that a kid growing up in the worst projects in Chicago would understand how the street works. Absolutely, that's what I said. I was like, he, you, he has street smarts at this young of an age, and that is a commentary in itself, but you get that this child is both a child and also very aware of how his world works. Well, also, he, I mean, and we'll get to this, I'm sure this is more of a story point than an acting point, but the way he recounts the story of the kid who died in the bathroom, as if it were just nothing. As if it were just like, oh yeah, this happened. And without any like emotion really tied into it, as if he's numb to it, brilliant. And then there's another, like I looked up the trivia to this movie and they called him One Take Jake because wow. he did all of his scenes like he could do it in one take. And I was like, for this kid to be able to give a performance like this in one take, I think wow. that's fantastic. Wow. Uh, so I just thought that he deserved to be. And then the final ones on my list in terms of casting is there were a few bit characters that I thought did really well. Okay. Like um, the cleaning ladies, Henrietta and Kitty. Yeah. Those women were so believable. Yeah. I love I know those women. Yeah, yeah, you know those women. Yeah, I know those women. Like those women were so, they were funny. They were informative. They knew But you know characters. what I loved? I loved that they didn't call her ma'am. I yes. love that they weren't like subservient to her. They just were, they were like, "Hello, yeah, I'm willing to help you." I like for me, their relationship felt lived in, yeah, which is crazy. And then also there was this, again, it. I don't think it was intended to be funny, but there's just this whole idea. I would love to speak to your friend. Okay, hold on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, Kitty, <laughs> she won't talk to you. <laughs> like, I yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was it was funny and it felt very familiar. Sure, and it didn't feel. Like a caricature. And and I want to say that because, you know, in the reviews that I heard of this movie, of like the negative, especially negative that people of color had to say about this movie, was that they interpreted a lot of this movie to be kind of, um, to, to have a, a white gaze. Like, to, to, to be like... To uh, to be racism written and produced and directed by a per, oh, by a white person instead of a person. Oh, of I have that complaint. And, and, and I do believe that there's touches of that there. However. I don't believe that I saw 
a lot of stereotypes. And whenever you did, it was broken. Like with Anne Marie's character, like she portrays herself as this angry black woman, but the moment you talk to her, she's like, not only is she, um, you know, speaking up for herself as far as I'm not like those people downstairs, but also, are you here to perpetuate more myths about my my building and about the people I live with? Like she's very hip and very smart. So same thing with Henrietta and Kitty. Like they come in and they're the cleaning service. But if we take a moment. Helen doesn't believe the first girl who tells her. Like, in the opening story, she writes her off. But when Henrietta and Kitty come in and they're telling their story or their version of it, then that's when Helen kind of gives it weight. And I sure. think there's something to be said about that. Sure. Um, so, yeah, that, that's how I feel about it. Do you have anything else for casting? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't have anything All right, else. there's only one other thing that I wanted to point and I, uh, in terms of casting, and that is... It does very interesting thing with women. Um, as I said, we have Henrietta and Kitty, which have a relationship, but it passes the Bechdel test almost immediately because the woman telling us the story is talking to Helen. Um, and like then we get Bernadette in, and they have a rapport, and there's a lot going on. A lot of women are in charge in this movie. Yeah. Women have agency. Uh, I just thought it was very, very interesting. They do a lot of really creative things. It's an interracial um, friend dynamic. Sure, yeah. Right off the bat. And I think that I just really thought that that was really interesting. They don't always make it great. There are a lot of women being victims. Sure. But they're also women in charge and women push the story forward. Or women getting their just desserts in a lot of ways. I mean, hey, let's watch it. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, so yeah, that's all I have for cast. All right, crew. Okay, so I want to talk about the music because mm -hmm. I was very curious as to why this specific kind of score was used through through the film. And what I'm referring to is this like gothic choir synthy kind of like ah yes. just like ahs. And yes. you know, I was choral. I was trying yeah, it was very choral and I was thinking about it and I was thinking about how the music helped me see the the inner city the urban area the hood as this almost sacred and scary and haunted place much like uh, an old cathedral or something mm -hmm. like that and it made me think about how you know the the hood whatever you want to say however you want to refer to it it's it's never seen like that before like um you know in white people movies you know you have these castles and you have these giant mansions where all these creepy things supposedly happen but you know realistically mansions and and these castles very little creepy stuff actually happens whereas if you go to an inner city where violence happens on the day to day where people are dying all the time this would be a much more haunted place than any mansion or any castle in Europe and that, the music alone made me think of the projects in a whole different light as like, wow, if any place were to be haunted, why wouldn't it be the South Side of Chicago? I will say that I didn't, I love everything that you just said. I didn't like the frequency of the choral music. Sure. Like, there are moments where I'm like, I did not need this here. And it also kind of comes out, like, there's no, like, crescendo, like, yeah. like building in sound-wise. It's just, like, cutscene and then full-volume choral. Exactly. Yeah. And I didn't, like, so that's in my bag. But as far as the, the Candyman song or theme song, however you want to call it, that is signature. And yeah. it is known as one of the most popular, uh, most recognized 
Halloween are horror themes. Are, yeah. yeah, horror themes. And I will say, like, it's 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 signature, and I think it's really helpful in this movie. Everything that you said, I agree with. Um, I also thought that you know, as far as scenery goes, um, you know, they shot portions of this movie in the actual. Um, projects that they're depicting in the film, which is one of the most notorious in all of Chicago. And the fact that they were like... Was. We're, it was, yeah. Um, the fact that they were like, no, we're going to go down there and actually shoot this. Where it's, We're not doing this on the set. We're not doing this on some like safe place in Detroit. Like, There's no reason for them to go there, but they did. And I respect that, and I feel like it brings a, a, a jevity to it that's... Um, like a it just a gravitas to the situation almost like it really helps uh, um, bring to life the very areas that they're symbolically trying to, you know, talk about throughout the film. Oh, no, so it's actually really funny. Uh, when I found that out, I was like, oh, bold. I mean, like yeah. they, they it says that they literally had to get uh, gang member uh, permission, and then like by including some of the gang members in the film. They got protection and they were allowed to film it. I was like, this is very interesting that you would do this uh, and set it here. So, um, but there is something to be said about actually showing things. I don't, I feel like when we go to the next session, there's so much that the building itself represents and has tied to it that I can see it both being a positive and a negative. What I will say too too, is that. And we'll get into this more in the story, but what the writer and director of this film, I believe, and this is just my opinion, I think they did a great job of handling um, a story that was about more than the story we saw. Yes. So as far as just like all the symbolism there, I mean, obviously there's things they could have done better. I hope things that Jordan Peele will do better. Yes. But this movie has substance in a way that many horror movies of the time didn't. So for that, I mean, you have to think about this. 1992, we're on like our fifth Halloween movie. Yeah. You understand what I mean? Yeah, like horror absolutely. movies had gone to a point where they were tired and exhausting because it was just kill after kill after kill. So, I, I mean, for them to kind of put some thought into the story, I thought was really Absolutely. I also loved, I like the editing in this movie. Okay. Because this movie, it does jump scares really well. Yeah. Like, they know their jump scares, but some of the jump scares are just with editing. Like, I, most notably to me, there's the scene where Anne-Marie says Candyman's name, and immediately it cuts to laughter. But it's the laughter of the professor that Helen's having dinner with. Yeah. But that cut was so jarring. Yeah. Because you felt like she had said something forbidden, and then to hear this kind of maniacal laughter... Almost immediately, I I jumped back and I was like, "Oh my god, what happened? Where are we?" And yeah. it's like, "Oh, we're just at dinner," but it showed just that tensity. Yeah, um, it comes through so well in this movie. I a hundred percent agree. Um, uh, do you want to talk about the story? Oh my god, story time! Okay, 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 okay. Let me tell you, when it comes to the story, I watched this movie and I was like, they they give you the thesis of this movie right off the beginning. Modern oral folklore. And uh, again, whenever you're in a classroom in a movie, usually it's trying to tell you something. And so I took that. And so modern 
oral folklore. And I was like, this movie is about the stories we tell ourselves. Yes. And I mean that throughout. It is repeated in so many ways. Um, it is the urban legends. Like, we see it both the tale of Candyman himself, and then there are little things like the razors and the candy. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like, we all, rem- this movie is about all of these um, stories that we choose to believe um, despite fact or evidence or anything like that. Uh, to, to your point about urban legends, uh, I just one of the things I wrote because again I'm I'm thinking about this from a more <laughs> yeah. symbolic point of view is that this movie is showing us how s- you can have the same urban legend told from different vantage points and it be a completely different story and I, you know it kind of you know when you hear a story told four different ways you realize maybe all ways are wrong. And it kind of made me think about our U.S. history and how it's folklore that's passed down through generations and we all have different perspectives of how it came to be and we're probably all wrong for missing a bigger picture that's lost in translation. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, like, again, to me, this movie is about the stories that we tell ourselves, most notably the stories that liberal whites tell themselves. Like, um, right off the beginning... It's we see Trevor and his lies. And we know that Trevor's lying. We know nothing about Trevor. And the moment he's like, oh, she's just a student. We're like, that's a lie. I knew You're the moment yeah. she shook her hand. I was like, she's trying to make herself present. Exactly. No, no, no. I mean, like, you see it. And when he said, oh, the lovely wife. I was like, that's her wife? She's the wife and she just saw that happen? Yeah. And he says, oh, you know, he just kind of plays it off. And she chooses to believe him. And I was like, again, this this lie this tale that she's willing to believe contrary to the evidence in front of her there's a great scene where they're about to have dinner and she's just like loving on him and serving him and he seems kind of out of it and she's like oh you haven't eaten already have you he's like oh no and then immediately you're like of course he did he of course he had dinner with his girlfriend like it's such a subtle thing but it allows us to know what's going on which he calls from prison what time is it, by the way? 3 a.m. And like, again, and it's just like, where were you? Oh, I was asleep. Nah, bitch. Nah. Nah. <laughs> like, like, it's just like, no, you were not here. You're like, it's 3 a.m. You did not even ask where I was. You and I live in a time where cell phones and all this sure, other stuff. Sure. But just in general, again, we all know what's going on. And she chose to believe it um, until she couldn't anymore. And I thought it was really interesting. But also for me on a larger state scale, this entire movie to me is kind of the rationale white people have when white people commit crimes. We are living right now in a state of time where, you know, like the cops are overreaching and there are several move are uh, news stories about white women, um, who have killed another person that is undeniable. And there's always that looking for blaming the victim. And there's always that, well, why did she, why would she have possibly have done this? She couldn't have intended to do this. Um, even Snapped, like a very popular show of Snapped, is like, oh, what led up to the ways of her getting here? Um, and not necessarily just dealing with the fact that you have a problem of white people who commit crime. Or the fact that a white woman was blaming crime on a fictitious black man. I mean, yeah, like I, in, in my opinion, this entire movie—God, oh I'm like I'm getting ahead of myself—but <laughs> like this entire movie serves as Helen's rationale for all of her actions. Yes. You know, it's she, it, it has to be the boogeyman. It can't be her. There's even a line where she says she's like, uh, "No part of me is capable of something like that," and you're like. 
but we saw you do it. You know, <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, you, as watching this movie, understanding Jordan Peele was attached to it. I was thinking, I actually saw a lot of parallels to us in the sense of like this mirroring between the society. So when she says, you know, this project is actually this exact building just on the other side of town, except this is a nice condo and that's a place we avoid when we drive by it. It helped me to understand that like, oh, so we're diving into gentrification. And what is Candyman, but like this urban legend, but a gentrification of an actual man's struggle that they're using to help teach tales. Again, like, I'm, I'm, I cannot get enough of this. Like, uh, you just hit on it with the building, but I was like, again, the stories of poverty and crime that white America loves to tell itself. Um, if you just want to, first of all, Anne-Marie says, right off the bat, when they get in there and they talk to her, yeah. she goes, you know, we're not all criminals. Like, they, they show a mom who is working, and, you know, like, this building has this one outside, and they're terrified. But in all actuality, the woman just wants to make sure that people aren't trying to harass her. Yeah. And then later on, we see that the real danger for that woman wasn't her environment. It was the outsider. Yeah. And that is really, really important. Additionally, um, I was going to say, there's a, a, a time when... And Marie's like, I called and no one came. And, you know, and it's just this story of very often in places like this, white people are like, oh, they don't love their community. They don't want to rat out the police. And it's like, no, I called and no one showed up. And even uh, Virginia Madsen goes on to say, you know, oh, she, uh, they called the police over a dead woman a bunch of times. And I call and the police gets there in no time flat or whatever, something like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. And I just, I love this tale of like, poverty and crime and how it's it's formulated as this one thing when in reality there's so much depth in humanity but white people don't see it that way it's just it's it's all there because they want it to be there um i'm just going to go a little bit further on the poverty and crime storytelling and that is to go into the history of cabrini green okay and the reason why i want to do that is i did not know this do you know cabrini green is where good times is set Oh, I didn't realize. Yes, the show Good Times is set in Cabrini Green. And the reason that is, is when Cabrini Green was first made, it was like public housing, but like a black oasis. Like it had things that nothing had ever had before. It was public housing at its finest. And a lot of black families considered it cream of the crop. And it's, it was, like, not too far from, as uh, Helen points out, the rich part of town. Yeah. And But the problem was that because it wasn't too far from the rich part of town, there wasn't maintenance kept to that building because they did not, the, the rich people did not want it to seem like public housing was getting something for nothing. They specifically, like, um, one of the tales that I looked up was that the builders of the building noticed that the number was, the addresses were painted on the building side. And he noted that it would be cheaper and look better if they just got metal signs like, like they do on the good side of town. And the government was like, if we do that, the, the rich side of town will feel like they are getting something for nothing. So they didn't want, they wanted to make sure that there was a distinguished 
different. It sounds like you're talking about two. systematic racism. Exactly. And then, wait, wait, wait. So, like, even on that, Cabrini Green, as I said, it was this oasis. It was a place where black families love to live. But the reason why it went down was not due to crime. It Crime came because the building stopped getting maintenance the way that it was supposed to. Um, and then because it was financially tied, of course, they certain families would move out and then families of lower income would move in and there was just no upkeep until eventually it just became this place where like apartments were abandoned abandoned and so drugs would be done there gangs would meet up there it it became a location of crime because it was left to rot mm. and as i said it's funny because if you were to look at that place even in this movie, you feel like it's a den of crime. It's it's this uh, place where bad things happen, not as the building itself is a victim. And you know what's interesting is that I couldn't help but think of the building when I saw it as like, I didn't find it to be as menacing as they made it out to be. And I, obviously I think that's the point, but when I saw the graffiti, I was like, wow, this is art. And, you know, I know that art plays a big role in this movie. It plays a big role in Candyman. But I love the art on the walls. I love the fact that we're immediately introduced to a resident that this proves why this is so so scary. Um, and so the fact that they're able to make this a place that, yes, could be menacing. But also, if you look beneath the surface, is not so. The fact that you're we're in the exact same apartment setup that our main character lives in, just the other reflection of it, what on the other side of the coin, living on the other side of the coin, we're seeing this. So I, I yeah, I thought the apartment was really interesting. Um, I what I I'll tell you, my biggest takeaway from this was just the idea of I couldn't help but correlate. Candyman saying it in the mirror five times, him getting his power from having his name set. Yeah. Him living on through the legends yep. of people talking about him that, you know, uh, people remembering him is what gives him strength. Absolutely. I could not help but to separate that from hashtag say my name, hashtag Sandra Bland, hashtag remember the names of the people who were taken from us so that we don't forget them so they don't lose their power and what they've contributed. Well, yeah, the 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 impact of stories yeah. is what this is and the stories that we choose to tell. Again, I think that you could say the same thing for racism. Yeah. You know, it's just like if you don't talk about it, it loses its power, but like not in the way that people think. It's just like not talking about it and not bringing it up makes people think that it doesn't exist when it's very much real yeah. and it doesn't go away. It just, it's able to, um, I'll say, wreak havoc without people identifying it. Um, one of the things that I really tried to make sense of was the fact that I know that Candyman was, you know, brutally murdered um, by a series, uh, you know, a mob of white men. Yes. Um, yet, the murders that are committed are against blacks. Yes. And what I was really trying to make sense of that, and what I kind of determined from listening to Tony Todd's Candyman, him talking about how, like, I need to be remembered, I need to for my story to continue to be told... For me to have, you know, he even goes on to tell Virginia Madison, like, being whispered about on street corners, being a, a, a hero and legend is better than being alive, which for black people, kind of, yeah. I mean, <laughs> in a very, I mean, think about it. There, um, you and I had this conversation earlier when we were talking Joker about Thomas Wayne, but there is something about dying as a black person that makes you more legendary. Yeah. And it's not something that, 
um, we should strive for, but you just become so much more, quote unquote, pure in death than you do it's, when you're it's, alive. It's Tupac versus, you know, you know, whatever. Absolutely. Like, I mean, like, as you said, it's Sandra Bland, it's Tamar Rice, it's, um, it's Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. It's all of these individuals. Harriet Tubman, when you have a a long and struggling life and you die as a black person, if you were if you were able to um do something memorable penetrate yeah, the zeitgeist, zeitgeist, then you you live on. Um well one of the reasons I think that the violence was being committed against blacks was because I think that they were being punished for not remembering the story of this ancestor punished for uh almost kind of like perpetuating this uh this thing that you know you're stuck in this violent loop until you start to remember the struggles of those who came before you it's not it's so what you're saying is it's like coco but like the evil version kind of <laughs> you will remember me and, and that, in that sense and it's you're right it's like the evil version of coco i didn't think of it like that but yeah sure absolutely uh absolutely and then um on on this whole story thing and the stories we tell ourselves there were a few other things that um i research and and I noticed that this movie does in terms of the story we tell ourselves, which is black people um, as threats. So Candyman's Candyman's origin is actually of the, the the play that this is based off of or the story that this is based off of is actually set in Europe. It's actually a British story. But bringing it into yeah, yeah bringing it into Chicago definitely changes everything about this. And he was a white man, but I do think that there is something to be said about making the villain or this horror character a former slave, because of course this is America, and making him just vengeful because he died over a white woman. You know, it's like all of these these stereotypes. That's what I thought too, was the fact that, you know, we have these horror... Every other character in slasher lore... Um, is are criminals that were died and came back, whereas this man's only crime was falling in love with a white woman. Like, if anyone had a reason to be vengeful, it would be him. You yes. know, that's this is a story. This is this is a story and a movie that I feel we should show more often. You know yes. what I mean? And just kind of discuss all of the themes that are There's, within it. Um, uh, yeah. So one of the things I want to say was that I love the correlation between the graffiti and the artist. And we have these, um, you know, part of Candyman's lore is that he is this famous artist, this famous painter, and they cut off his hand when they when they capture him. When I think about the way that our arts have been robbed from us, uh, this, yeah, I didn't to me think of that, but that was such a symbolic thing of like the thing that you create with the thing that you use to you know free yourself in this world where most are not free. Well, you know, Jim Crow, anyway. We're going to strip that away from you. So even if you do live through this, you have no way of continuing the life you know. Um, and then when you think about the fact that graffiti are artists who are working with the scraps they are given, yeah. these two ideas m- is a perfect marriage, I think. Absolutely. Um, I also, just in kind of wrapping up the, the story part, I really love the kind of like the ending of this. But again, I kind of wish they had leaned in a little bit more when you, the great reveal, which is that Helen is, I guess, the reborn version of the white woman Candyman fell in love with, which like, and it says, it, Helen, it was you the whole time. Yeah. 
I, A, loved that twist because I did not see it coming. It's like, it makes sense. We were talking about a white woman earlier. We are following a white woman now, one and one. But then also the idea that, um, again, there's just this understanding or this interpretation of, no, Helen, it was you the entire time. And being able to think about it in that way of like, no, all of this is coming from you. You keep projecting it onto this supernatural being, but it's been you the entire time. I think that there's just something there that I would really, really love to see played with. I, I, I love that idea, actually, because I didn't really come away from it with that understanding. Um, what I thought was more interesting, at least what gravitated to me at the time, was this fact that if, you know, Helen is this kind of rebirth of this woman who uh, was, you know, a part of this romance with uh, the Candyman in the 1800s or whatever, you know, she is just as implicit in the crime as he was, yet she was never punished. Ooh, God. Again, and Tony Todd dies, and his hope is that this, his future descendants will merely remember him, whereas a white woman who is just as implicit in the crime has not only got a chance to live out that life, but a rebirth in the whole new life a second chance that she is given that we are not given. And that's how I kind of interpret it. Again, I could like, I just love that interpretation. And it is, I mean, it is right there from the very beginning. Helen's character is someone who she goes into um, this place and she's just taking pictures and she's just like, Oh, I'll just tell them that I work for the university. And it's like, what kind of hubris do you have to go into someone gang territory well <laughs> one of the other things i thought was really interesting was that even though her husband's cheating on her at least you know for well longer than maybe i would have even he continues to support her and it kind of r- reminded me of just how like i don't know and maybe i'm thinking digging too deep into it but just how others will are more likely to believe the exaggerations of a white woman than the reality of a color. Absolutely. Again, absolutely. I think there's a, there's a moment when Helen is first arrested where she's like, do you think I did it? And he says, of course not. She's like, but you thought about it. I was like, yeah, bitch, you were found in someone else's apartment with a knife when the police came in and you're covered in blood. Of course we thought about it. Even if I think you are completely innocent. It don't look good. And the fact that you are offended that I questioned yes. is, is is part of this whole idea of white people being like, you should just know that I didn't even have anything to do with yes. this, despite all the evidence in front of us. Um, are you ready to move on to superlatives? Uh, yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, best actor, again, for me, I wrote Virginia Madison and Dewan because I felt that uh, Helen does really great one of my favorite scenes that I, I didn't really put in here, but, uh, or sorry, we'll get to in favorite scenes, but I'll just say it now, is when she comes home after escaping the institution and she's just like talking about seeing Trevor and you walk in and he's there with Stacy and everything that you knew, you like, you know, someone's dying. Yeah. Like you just know someone is. And that whole tension of her being very controlled and again, at this point in time, I don't know if she's crazy or if all the events that have happened so far are actually happening, but I do know that that moment is full of intensity and she has every right to feel any way she feels in that moment. And I think Virginia Madison does very well 
with like towing that line of sure. betrayal, anger, and ultimately walking away. Um, uh, no, I, I agree. I think she does a fantastic job. Um, I'm actually giving my best actor to Tony Todd. I know that he <laughs> actually doesn't even show up until like an hour into the movie. He doesn't actually play a huge part. But I truly don't believe that this movie is memorable without him. And I don't believe this movie, um, is, I would say the sequel has, agree with you. And, and the tone actually would even um, change if we had a Wesley Snipes or we had a Lawrence Fishburne or someone else in this role. So um, I give it to him. All right. Uh, best scene. I kind of lose one of my uh, favorites, but I also had one where it's ju- it's so simple, but it's the scene when Bernadette and Helen are in Ruthie Mae's apartment for the very first time. And Helen has decided to go through the mirror. That scene is so tense. Again, there are no jump scares, really. There are no special effects. There's not even music. It's just Helen... Sorry, it's just Bernadette sitting in that bathroom alone. And it's so tense. And you are so terrified because you don't know what's about to happen. And I think that there's something to be said about just letting the viewers live in that tense moment with Bernadette. Yeah. Because we she we don't follow Helen. We are just sitting there with Bernadette. And we just see her as vulnerable and alone and open to any danger that could come. Sure, on. sure. Um, I'm going to give my best scene, even though it's kind of um, probably uh, uh, an easy scene to give it to. I really like the initial jump scare where Helen is looking into the mirror and she opens it. And we think because the mirror is open that we're safe because the whole theory is that he comes through the mirror. But he actually punches through the wall (laughs) of the, the, the mirror back. And to me, that was probably the one jump that as a kid I remember really getting to me. So that's why I'm giving it best. Okay, sweet. Um... And uh, do you have a memorable quote? Um, I don't really. I think that a lot of... Hold on one second. I, I do, if you don't have yeah, one. Yeah, go for I it. Throw it um, my favorite quote of this movie, which I think really um, tells a lot about the whole film, is when they're initially heading over to the projects for the first time, um, you know, uh, Bernadette's feeling some, like, apprehensive. She's feeling apprehensive about it. And Helen says, you know, Bernadette, we have a real shot here. There's an entire community that's attributing their daily horrors, the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. And I was like, fucking America. Yeah, honestly, again, <laughs> the, the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah, and I, I I, used that sentence as the thesis for everything else. Yeah. That and then, uh, of course, Trevor's lesson, to me, is what this movie's about. Um, the only other line that I really liked was when, again, every time she, like, uh, what's the matter, Trevor? Scared or something? And yeah. it was it's something that came back in, again and again. But I really, really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Uh, bad. Okay. After gushing about it. Um, the bad, I think that um, if we're going to go with cast and everything, I feel like some of the characters, like the, the fake Candyman, for example, he feels... a bit like a cliche can, can i tell you my interpretation of him yeah i think that he is symbolic of how in the 80s and 90s you had these personas like nwa that were like you know what you you 
think of me as your worst nightmare. So I'm going to adapt this persona for my own gain and benefit because I'm owning this persona. I like I'm going to pretend to be the monster you make me out. The be. character I believed and the actor I just was like mm, Okay, fair, fair mm-hmm. enough. Um, that and then the professor at dinner. I can't remember his name. I looked it up, but I just couldn't find it. Yeah. Uh, and I will admit, I didn't look hard. Um, I just, him at dinner, he felt, he also felt very much like a caricature. Yeah. I hated his entire scene. Um, and yeah, that's where I'm at. Um, Stacy and Trevor, I really didn't care for as actors, their performances, really. I honestly, especially after Virginia Madison kind of does a pretty solid performance through this, seeing Stacy's reaction to dead Trevor at the end just didn't have the weight that I thought it should have. Yes, and like, I'm not gonna say that she hits it out of the park, but when uh, Helen comes home and Stacy just can't, like, she, yeah, it's like she. Uh, all her chickens have come home to roost, and she feels it. That girl can't look anyone in the eye. Yeah. She's just terrified, and she's just, like, she backs herself into a corner. I I thought she did good in that scene. She does great when she's introduced as the girl who we know Trevor's cheating with, yeah. even though we don't know it. And she does great in that scene where she is just the other woman, and she should be terrified, and she is. Okay. All right. You will agree to disagree there. <laughs> Um, do you have a worse scene, a scene that you didn't care for? As I said, again, for me, the um, scene at the dinner was just something that I could have, like, I just feel like we could have gotten the explanation of Candyman a different way. And not only is the character pompous and loud and not convincing, it's just, like, we do see him again later, but, like, I felt like he had no relevance to the story. I will say that even though I, I understand why the gangster Candyman took on that persona... I felt that the movie got a little sloppy with the addition of him in there. Yes. But I also think that the bathroom scenes that we saw were just very violent in a way that I was just like, oh, wow, okay, we're going to cut a kid's dick off. Like, yeah. that's some serious shit to throw into a movie. And, like, I, I don't necessarily think, like, cutting the dick off of a handicapped kid was something that made sense in this film. This movie is violent. I yeah. mean, like, the scenes with the dog alone, I was like, yeah. did I need to see that? Yeah. Um, it literally shows us Helen getting hit. Um, like, this is this is, this is movie literally does not hold back his punches. No. And I was very surprised by that, and I was very put off by that. Yeah, same. Um, what about quotes? Do you have any quote that stood out to you in a, in a negative way? Again, I think that, for me... Just a lot of certain dialogues from characters was, like, cheesy. And I was like, I could do without this. Um, there's one point where the kid says, um, where he basically says in so many words, like, better off being dead than being a retarded kid with no yes. dick. Or oh, something God. like that. Yeah. And I was just like, wow. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, like our other podcast, bro. I was like, this would be a bro moment. Yeah. Because I was like, wow. Because they, le- like, it's, it's hearing R say, said so... Yeah. It's, yeah. It's it's a different time. Absolutely. Um, anyways, okay. So, cultural impact. What do you think is the legacy of this movie, and how does it compare to its initial release? Um, well, I think that, as you said, it's become a cult classic. And I don't know its current standing as a cult classic, and if it's loved for the same reasons that we love it. But I do love that Jordan Peele's bringing it back. Yes. Because I feel like, just in the time that we're living in, there are a lot of things being 
that are just reflective. Sure. What, one of the things I was going to say was that, you know, even though we got a lot from this movie, I felt like we had to dig for it in a way that Jordan Peele tends to serve on the platter a little um, easier to digest for the general public. Maybe, but I don't, I don't, I think what I loved about this movie is it wasn't hard to see it, to me. I think it's like, it's very clear. They literally say, this is the same building it's just like, well, you know, you know I mean? and the reason I say that is because I've read just so much, um, just like wildly different assessments of this movie to where most people did not get what we got from it. And so that's what makes me think that, you know what, there's room there to kind of bring to the forefront some of the things that are kind of more subtle. If I may be so bold, I feel like those interpretations are always through a white lens. And if what you want to say to me is that Jordan Peele will be able to tell this story in a way that white people will understand. I don't, I don't think that. I think just from a storytelling perspective, taking something that's um, maybe just has lots of layers and is kind of complicated and kind of giving it to us in a way that when we walk away from the movie, we understand everything that they were trying to say versus it just kind of being this kind of mystery. Because I do... I unfortunately think that a lot of what was good in this movie was missed. And I, I but I feel like, <laughs> and this is not to, I, I, I can see what you're talking about. I just feel like it's only missed because it's another part of not wanting to acknowledge it. Sure. You know, like, they're, like how can you see a movie that says, by the way, this building and that building, same architects, same individuals, like, it it literally has a white woman going into a black neighborhood. Um, it has all of these um, dichotomies right there, and it's not even like leaning on Candyman himself. Sure, we are following this white woman as she has to deal with trying to be believed. She has to deal with um, the rationale of her actions and finding herself in all these places, and she herself says, when I, a white woman, say and do these things, I am treated differently than the black communities that have been dealing with it longer. I think if you can't see those elements, you're not looking. One of the things I will say that I think is kind of an undisputed legacy of this movie is the fact that we do get our first black man of horror. Yes. In a way that, you know, of the time we had, like I said, Freddy, Jason, Chucky was around. Like we had a yeah. doll and a leprechaun before we had a <laughs> black guy. And so just to see one with so much coolness and swag, um, I thought was a, a, something that's been pretty impactful as far as like it's... But I would say that, uh, I mean, he definitely... He has entered the horror hall of legends, but it's sad to me that we don't get more of that. Oh, I mean, yeah, because uh, I'll say Us is the only other movie that we get where the villain is a person of color yeah. as well, um, as opposed to all these other horror genres um, where, don't get me wrong, white men are usually the ones at the helm, but still. Sure, sure, absolutely. <laughs> Um, all right, so, uh, you know, we kind of talked about this a lot, but just quickly to summarize, what do you think is the biggest message this movie's trying to tell, whether it be political, uh, social, religious? Like, what do you think it's its main uh, thesis statement that it's trying I to... I think the, the stories that we tell ourselves are very powerful, and um, that that's my theory. I think that, um, that black history is often misinterpreted, 
Mm. And that without properly remembering it, we may be doomed to repeat the same fate as those who have suffered before us. Yeah, that's a that's a very deep, deep reading. And uh, I'm happy to see it. Um, makeover. The studio is going to give you millions of dollars to do a m- reboot of this movie. Jordan Peele backs out. I was like, no, 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 no. I was going to say, I give all my money to Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele backs out, and they call you up, and they're like, you're up, bro. What I'm like, give me more making? money. I'm going to Jordan Peele. I want to see what he does with this. That's where I'm at with this. Um, Because in, in all honesty, I think for me, the idea, even if, like, say Jordan Peele hadn't announced himself, I would have totally went and been like, Jordan, well, I want to see what Jordan Peele could do with this. Yeah. Mostly because he is the new wave of horror. I think we're always looking forward to seeing what he can do with uh, something like this. And he handles social issues and horror and that balance very well, as you had said earlier. So, Well, I have to say, if I were going to do a reboot of this movie and I were going to remake it, I have no idea what Jordan Peele's story yet is for the sequel, uh, for the remake, sequel, whatever. Um, It has not been released yet. Um, I would probably lean into the gentrification aspect of it. You know, especially these major cities, New York, L.A., Chicago. You know, we have these places that used to have this really ethnic cultural hub that had been taken over um, by people who think the graffiti on the walls is just pretty and not understanding the history of it. And I think there's something to be had, like, to be done there where you can kind of um, modernize it a bit. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the one of the very first notes I wrote was like, oh, we going into gentrification here? Yeah. Uh, and it just, I don't think it stayed in that area long enough, but uh, I really, really loved that, that topic in yeah. manner. Okay, um, a few movie fun facts uh, as we close out. Uh, Tony Todd was stung 23 times uh, when he was making this movie, but he said he got a really good lawyer because he had in his contract that he would get paid $1,000 for every bee sting that he endured. How much would you take a bee sting for? I mean, well... Minimum. Minimum. Think about this. Minimum <laughs> well, amount. A, this is 1992. Okay. I think that's really important. And, um... Bro, I'm saying right now. I have a handful of cash, and I'm like, <laughs> what is the least amount of money that you're willing to get stung by bees, plural, for? I don't know. I don't know, because I don't know if I'm allergic. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Virginia Madsen was, and she did not have that in her contract, so she yeah, got fucked over. stupid. Stupid. The bees uh, were bred exactly for this movie. Uh, So they were to look like full-grown bees, but they were actually only uh, 12 years old. Um, And there's just like a point in time where... Bees have a, I guess, a teenage year where they look old, but their yeah. stingers aren't fully developed. Sure. It's so, very brief. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and some scenes were filmed in the actual, as we said, uh, Cabrini Green Projects, um, which is, again, no longer exist. Sure. It was torn down because of, again, systematic oppression. Um, Apparently, the one thing I do know about this movie that Jordan Peele's making is that this will make... Um, a story point into the new one as far as the projects go, as far as that specific project. Oh, really? Whether it not being there or it being rebuilt or something like that. Ooh, that, like, because the, the land is still there, yeah. but, like, the, the tower. I'm sure that land's like, worth a lot right now. Oh, it's, uh, oh, uh, of course, of course, that land, sorry we are going on this tangent, but that land is a super center. It has, it is worth, Several, like, condos, of course, are in that mm-hmm. area. Um, I watched a video where it's, like, a a, a, cha- a mall chain 
and everything, and then right for gentrification. Oh, perfectly, of course. So because what happened was they made a law in Chicago that um, you could tear down buildings, but for every building you tear down, you had to put up more public housing. Uh, you had to for every public housing thing you tore down, you had to put up another building. And of course, they went straight for Cabrini Green took down that land, and then put people elsewhere. Sure. And then they're like, oh, we have all this land now. What could we possibly do? Um, so, yeah. Wow. It's just, for me, I was like, so basically, the story just continues. Sure, sure. Um, uh, so that's very sad. And, yeah, those are your fun facts. Um, uh, oh, also, this is Tony Todd's favorite movie. Well, I mean, I can't see <laughs> I why mean, it wouldn't If be. I still got residual checks, it'd be my favorite movie, uh, yeah. too. Um. Uh, you know what? We have some games and questions. We don't actually, I know we're kind of running over on time, so I don't know if you want to do all of these. Well, Maybe you we can just pick edit it. Yeah, yeah, you sure. sure. Whatever okay, so yeah, let's just go through it. Um, all right, games and questions. Siege, uh, top five slasher movies. Go. Ooh, slasher movies. Uh, that's going to be hard. You know Scream is in there. Yeah. Um, no particular order. Just yeah, the Candyman five. is now in there. Um, I like... Does um, Strangers count? Sure. Yeah, I like strange. I think Strangers is very creepy. Yes. Um, and I just like Halloween. Okay. And I know what you did last summer. Uh, I get you. Like, you know, that's you, on know, your I fucking know you, list. I know. Wait, 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 wait. I know what you did last summer is only on my list because of how much fun I have with that movie. That is a movie that I watch every Fourth of July because I want to remind people all the time that is a. Fourth of July movie. Oh, you made me watch it on Fourth yeah, of July. Listen to our podcast <laughs> on I Know What You Did Last Summer. It is a terrible but awesome movie. Um, top five. I have to tell you, I'm like again, I'm I grew up on horror movies. I'm kind of a purist here. So I'll tell you that the first Halloween, the first nightmare on Elm Street, the first child's play are are, are, are on my list. Those are all traumatizing to me, so they don't I don't like them. <laughs> um I actually will put strangers on my list because I actually like it quite a bit as well. Um as far as like modern takes of a of a slasher movie. Um and my last one I'm gonna put on there, um it, although it's a bit of a different movie, I've mentioned it to you before, is this movie called Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon which is about this kind of documentary crew that follows this, the serial killer as he's preparing to do one of these big kill nights. <laughs> and I just think it's the most fascinating slasher movie, and it has Robert Englund in it, and it has, um, I believe, the guy who played the Jigsaw. So just all these cameo figures that I just think it's, it's a great uh, slasher movie. So. All right, cool. I had, spe specifically because we're doing Candyman, what are some urban legends that you remember growing up? Okay, so I... They were never anything that was, like, super creepy. Like, I didn't really... Like, maybe the the babysitter who gets the call from inside the house was maybe one that I heard. But a lot of it was like, oh, if you do pop rocks and soda, you're going to explode. Yeah. No, <laughs> easily disproven. <laughs> I love, like, that, like if we want to talk... I guess these are, like, I don't know if they're urban legends, but, like, there are a lot on the internet as of lately of, like, all of these tales that our parents told us that aren't true. Like, if you drive with the light on, you'll get a ticket. Yeah. Like, oh, there are all these things where it's, like, we grew up and we were like, oh, you can't do that. You'll get in There's... trouble. And then you grow up and you're like, that was a lie. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> one, actually, one of the ones that um I did hear about and did scare me well before I saw it reenacted in the movie Urban Legends was the whole idea of someone being in the backseat. Yes, honestly, I kid you not, that still to this day is any scene where someone is in the back seat 
where the driver's unaware. Terrifying. terrifying. Absolutely. Terrifying. <laughs> um, now that we actually bring up Urban Legends, you know, this movie tackles Urban Legends, Candyman, and obviously the movie, horror movie Urban Legends does the same thing. Um, do you have any, uh, which, which one do you think is a better take on folklore? This movie or Urban Legend? Mm-hmm. Um, Urban Legend is like a hodgepodge. It's yes. like a collection of like all of them. So, um, I don't, I don't really know. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I, I will say that I believe that this movie is a more like, um, what folklores actually are. Whereas yeah. Urban Legends is like, hey, here's a book of all the urban legends. Let's try to hit all of them. Exactly. Up. That's what I'm saying. Sure. And it just, it just feels like it's supposed to be like, we did this one. You remember yeah. this urban legend and you're like, all right, calm down. Whereas this movie, again, I thought was really, really interesting that there's this scene with, candy and a razor blade in the middle of it and you're like oh that's one that we've all heard but ain't nobody like again it's never recorded of happening at all and additionally like right now there's all of these warnings about like people giving about giving out edibles around halloween and everyone's like do you know how much edibles cost no one's ain't giving nobody away. giving your child an edible for free oh my gosh the <laughs> biggest myth of all time is like people are just giving drugs away for free no that's not happening <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess uh, one of my favorite urban legends was that I grew up with a retirement account. <laughs> Consistent employment. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah that absolutely. Thing? Yeah. <laughs> Economic <Okay>. growth. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Movie Makeover. Remember, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, all of the places that you are currently listening to us. Um, you can find us. Sorry, you can find me on Twitter at Extra Siege. That's X-T-R-A-C-E-E-J-T-C. You can find me at a braver me at braver.me on Instagram. And if you guys have thoughts on how to make Candyman better, if you have thoughts on the movie in general that you want to share with us, please hit us up at movie underscore makeover on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. You can also email us at moviemakeoverpod at gmail.com. As always, I'm Siege. And I'm TC. Makeover and and out. Be my victim. Be my victim. No. no.